selfishness and unhappiness. Why? Hello, my name is Stephen Russell AC. This is the fifth script in a series of six podcasts on what is in store for us if we survive death. So far, we have explored accounts of life after death, our individual character in the next life, and the concept of selfishness. Now, assuming this concept is valid, I look at its consequences. Do selfishness and unhappiness go together? And if so, why? It would not be surprising that how deeply happy one can be will depend on one's depth of well-being. Those at peace with their lot will likely feel calm, whereas those craving things they haven't got will tend to be restless. When anyone delights in meeting the needs of others, then isn't their satisfaction its own reward? But when we take pleasure instead in antagonising others or being greedy, won't the long-term effect be discontent and frustration? Well, okay, you may be wondering, aren't we happy doing what we want, regardless of what it is? In the philosopher Emanuel Swedenborg's message, the more that neighbourliness, community spirit and honesty become a way of life, then the more we will experience a sense of fulfilment and delight. On the other hand, a life of selfishness, with its resulting greed or deceit without remorse, he says, can only result in shallow pleasure. Well, I think he's right. Aren't we all a bit selfish anyway, you might be wondering? Why does selfishness result only in superficial delight? Well, of course, self-centeredness means putting oneself first, looking first to enjoy bodily pleasure, praise and admiration of others, getting our own way in all things. But from a spiritual perspective, is not all this way of seeking happiness nothing more than an illusion? Doesn't real happiness come when it is not sought? At the risk of sounding sanctimonious, I firmly believe that permanent happiness arises from genuinely focusing our minds on the needs of other people. It comes from wanting to serve some useful function in whatever situation we happen to find ourselves. Isn't happiness to do with whom we live with and whom we meet? Well, okay, one relevant observation that might help explain why selfish pleasures result in less happiness concerns something Swedenborg observed. He saw that at some point in the next life, those with selfishness mixed with those with similar character, and this does have ramifications. The depth of one's happiness will vary according to the company one keeps. Actually, he observes, generally speaking, in the next life, that we each associate with those with similar character to ourselves. 
those who have a similar level of personal development, or lack of it. So the sensible associate with the sensible, the foolish with the foolish. And one ends up associating with those with similar desires. And in this way, we are most at ease. Each of us would be each interacting with those who see things in comparable ways, in terms of similar values, similar ethical values, or criminal values, spiritual values, or materialistic ones. Actually, I would argue one can see something of this tendency in this life, in terms of the friends we choose. Don't we mix with others who share our interest in some worthy cause? Those who like to gossip, don't they spend time together? Those with the same social prejudices, don't they tend to find out each other? And to express hostility, one can join a gang looking to enjoy violence. If each person does connect with the like-minded, then, of course, different social circles will form. Some groups have mutual concern and good sense. Other groups just consist of individuals who want possessions for themselves or to get their own way. Imagine we are self-focused and self-serving, but happen to find ourselves in the company of considerate and kind, unselfish people. Those who don't share our I'm all right, Jack attitude, who don't share our sneering jokes, who don't have the same self-indulgent fantasies, wouldn't we soon feel out of place, like fish out of water, and want to get back to people more like ourselves? Well, yes, but the trouble is, when one craves for what one wants, for oneself, there can only be restlessness, there can only be frustration, because the other people around us are wanting the same thing. When everyone is like this, there, there is rivalry, there's no sense of shared community, nothing of peace and goodwill. And Swedenborg noticed the social sphere of very selfish people. He observed there was neither mutual love nor any mutual respect between the sexes. He found only bitter rivalry between each person, seeking to dominate the other by compulsion or even by subtle low cunning. The unpleasantness of this dark state of the afterlife is really only the frustration experienced by selfish people when they cannot get what they want from each other, when they cannot get the admiration they crave, when they cannot possess what others have, when they are no longer obeyed. The reality is this frustration would not be a joyful existence. Well, we might wonder about young people who tragically die before their adult life has really got going. It would seem rather unfair if, in an afterlife, they were to continue in an endless state of joylessness. Why couldn't such individuals learn to consider the needs of others as well as themselves? What is the reason one cannot learn one's lesson and find peace and contentment? Why cannot anyone, for that matter, however self-centred they are, to start with, why can't they develop into a very different person after they have died? Don't we have a say in what our life will be like after death? Okay, let's look at this. 
According to Swedenborg, in the early stages of the next life, what is selfish in people, yes, can sometimes be set aside. This is probably the case for those whose selfishness is not so entrenched. These, if they wish, can learn the error of their ways. Perhaps thinking pretty much only of themselves was necessary when alive on earth. Maybe they had never experienced anything other than disappointment and rejection. They may have had a raw deal so that no one else was looking out for them. Fighting for emotional and financial survival was all they knew. So, in the next life, can we all grow out of being self-centred? He also writes that self-concern in some people gets to be really entrenched. They habitually confirm this state of mind by their actions, so much so that in them selfishness amounts to, to contempt, it amounts to hatred or even cruelty. His point is that these characteristics cannot be mingled with love of higher principles and compassion. And so he declares that those of a basic, entrenched, selfish character sadly stay in their selfish state. Their level of happiness is shallow and remains permanent. We can compare this dark side of the afterlife with a prison. Jail is quite literally hell on earth. Prisoners are often repeat offenders as they won't admit there is a problem and so can't sort it out. And usually they have an upside-down view on what is right and wrong. They promote what is bad on the false premise that the meaner we are, the less people will try to hurt us. In this way, they gain the illusion of respect from others through creating fear in them. Well, can't we develop less selfishness when we have more self-understanding, you might wonder, more self-insight? Yes, to want to change does require personal insight into the tragic error of one's ways. Without insight, how can you have a change of mind, a change of direction? But insight does require enlightenment. It does require illuminated understanding. It requires light. But the worst kind of selfishness is dark. Dark states of narcissism. Dark states of hatred and sadism. It is a consciousness lacking the light of self-insight. And light is an uncomfortable thing sometimes when it shows us up. Who likes being made to face criticism about ourselves in the light of social conscience. Anyone who has developed a serious pattern of selfishness and are shown up for what they are would probably feel extremely uncomfortable. Let us imagine for one moment we have various aspects of a, various, of a selfish character. With the light of truth, we would realise that a much deeper level of happiness is possible According to Swedenborg's vision, in the next life we would acknowledge our true character only when this light of truth sometimes shines. Then the light will be clear enough to show up the ugliness of our surroundings, an ugliness we had not noticed previously. 
It would mirror the ugly state of heart and mind we'd form for ourselves. Not a welcome sight. And the inner conflict would immediately arise with us. We would be obliged to recognise the total improper nature of ourselves. If we preferred a life of idle self-serving action, we would suffer huge distress. We would want to hide away from the light. All we want is to return to our normal state where we wouldn't have to honestly face ourselves for what we are. Being selfish people, we would prefer to continue in the delusions of self-justification. So we would turn away from the light, which would have illuminated our understanding. The light is always there, but we would prefer the darkness. In the final episode of the series, I provide a summary of what has been said and apply this this understanding to show up some what I think are Christian misconceptions about the afterlife.